Now, last week, y'all, y'all that were here, you know, we started a new series through the book of First Peter. But we weren't in First Peter last week. We were in the book of Matthew last week. And the reason we started off in the book of Matthew is so that we could lay some groundwork on the life of Peter. Who was Peter and how did we get to this point? And so uh, you that were here, we, we went over uh, how Peter had a pride problem and uh, what that meant in his life and what ended up happening in his life and how it ultimately led to the denial of Jesus and just looked into all of that. Uh, but thank God, uh, Jesus wasn't done with Peter. And uh, Peter went on, um, uh, preached at Pentecost. 3,000 people were saved that day. God used Peter in a mighty way, even after his failure. And so uh, we know from the Bible that failure is not final. So many people believe that failure is final. A lot of people in the world believe that. People in church believe that. But that's not biblical. And uh, I believe if, the, if failure was final, uh, Peter would have been done for after he denied Christ. But that's not how God works. And thank God... He went on and used him greatly and used him to write a couple epistles here, First and Second Peter, and that's where we're going to dig in tonight in First Peter chapter number 1. If you found your place in the Bible, uh, let's stand in honor and reverence to the reading of the Word of God. I'm going to get rid of my gum and then we'll go somewhere here. <clears throat> All right, I'm going to read the first two verses, but you need to keep your Bibles open tonight. We're actually going to be all through the chapter of 1 Peter tonight, but uh, I'm going to read two verses here as our text, and then we'll get on into the message. The Bible says, first two verses of 1 Peter chapter number one, the Bible says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. So we have the greeting here of the letter of First Peter. And thank you for standing. You can be seated now. And uh, I want to start off by way of introduction by saying this right here. The freeway to failure is always smooth and downhill, but the road to success is always winding uphill and a dirt path. It's just how it works. You know what? You got to work to succeed. As a matter of fact, uh, I've... I, I mean, it's the truth. I know this is going to sound a little corny, but we need to remember it. The only place where success comes before work is in a dictionary. It's the truth, you know? It's the truth in life. And so uh, we can't demand or expect that our journey is going to be easy. Uh, we just can't. That's why, that's why it's so troublesome that so many are out here preaching a prosperity-driven gospel. Uh, people like Jesse Duplantis that says that he, he is living on earth the way he'll live in heaven with all of his treasures and uh, all of his wealth and all of his health. And, and uh, my goodness, what Bible do these guys get this stuff from? Uh, it's not the one I'm reading. And uh, it's amazing. That's not how it works. It, life is hard. And the Bible says life is hard. And, and the Christian life is hard. And, and we need to understand that. We can't demand and we can't expect the journey of life to be easy. And 
I'm telling you, even, even the most casual reading of Scripture shows us that our walks as Christian, uh, as a Christian is going to be uphill and into the wind. But we are on the right road, and that road leads to eternal rewards. And so Arthur D. Edmund Hybert, in his commentary for 1 Peter, he says this, the first epistle of Peter has appropriately been called the epistle of living hope. It sets forth the hope of the believer in the midst of a hostile world, addressed to those who stood as strangers in the midst of an antagonistic and oppressive world. It is a ringing appeal to steadfast endurance and unswerving loyalty to Jesus Christ. Now, God never promises his children that they will have easy lives. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But here's the thing. He tells us that, but he also promises in 2 Corinthians 12.9 that my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And the bad news is we're weak. The good news is he is strong. And so we, what we need to do is claim that strength for the challenges that we face in our day. And so I want, I want you to notice, we're going to hit just right off the bat here in 1 Peter, we're going to see some troublesome times. And the first thing that we see in verse number 1 is a scattered family. Look at verse 1. What does it say? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, Watch this, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. What are these places? They're countries. And so we have a scattered family. The, this group of believers is quite different from the believers we find in the early church, okay? In Acts, for example. Those early believers in the book of Acts who had weathered the storms uh, following the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, they were a tight-knit group. These 120 believers in Acts chapter 1 had learned uh, to expect opposition. And no doubt they had relied not only on the Lord, but they relied on each other to get through those fiery trials. And a bond between them had been forged and they were determined to now carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. Here's Bible for that, Acts chapter 2 verse 1. It says, and when, the and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Acts chapter 2 verse 44 says, and all that believed were together and had all things in common. Acts chapter 2 verse 46 tells us, and they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. By the way, I had something on now. I don't know what that was. But uh, by the way, while I'm talking about this, I'll just go ahead and say that it is not God's will for anybody to sit at home by themselves and have church online. I'm live streaming tonight. I put all, almost all of our messages, all of our churches episodes on Facebook and on YouTube, on our website. That's fine. It's, I use it as an outreach. There's people that watch them that, that don't come to church. That's fine. But let me tell you, it's not a replacement for church. We have a whole bunch of people in the Christian world today, and they've really been saying it since 2020. Well, the church is not a building. That's technically correct. It's not a building. It's a body of believers. But you cannot tell me using the Bible, that it is okay to sit at home and not come 
to church. We are to assemble together. The body of believers comes together. That's how the New Testament church operated. You cannot tell me otherwise because I just read you about ten verses talking about how they worshipped. They were all together. They were all in one accord. They were all assembled together. And the Bible even tells us not to forsake our assembly together. God's plan... I'm going to keep going now and get off my soapbox. But God's plan for this early church was that they would be witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. That's Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Now, it seemed like a massive task that would require endless energy and, and precise organization. God was way ahead of them, however. Here's what He would do. He would use persecution to spread the gospel. Now, in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, the Bible says at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Isn't that amazing? He told them, now this goes into something else, I don't have time because we're already going to be here 45 minutes, but anyways, uh, here's the thing. God had told the believers in the early church that his word would go to all these places. Now, some commentators write this, and I, I, you know, I've not studied that for this message tonight, just so you know, but, but there was something that happened. They didn't spread. They didn't go. So what did God do? He used persecution to scatter them. In other words, he forced the church to be scattered. That's what we find in the book of Acts. And uh, in, in, like I said, uh, in, in chapter 8, verse 1 of the book of Acts, that's what it says. It says they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And the very same areas that God had commissioned them to reach in Acts 1-8 were indeed reached in Acts 8-1. And they were reached through persecution. Now God used the endangerment of their lives to evangelize the world. And persecution moved them from their location. But guess what? It could not remove their message. In Acts chapter 8 verse 4, the Bible says, Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. In Acts chapter 11 verse 19 through 21, the Bible says, Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenice and and Cyprus and Antioch preaching the word to none but the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. And so here's the thing. The fiery trials never make present tense sense, okay? But they always make future tense sense. That was a tongue twister. Let me just put it this way. The fiery trials never make sense now. But in the future they will. And they did for the church. They did for the early church. Uh, and, and here's the thing. That makes sense to us because we can't see the future. Of course it's troublesome now and we don't know what to do and it seems like such a big deal. Because we cannot see the future. We fear those trials. But God can see way ahead of us. In His sovereign way, He's always doing exactly what is best, even if we don't think it. 
So I want you to notice three things about the audience Peter is writing to here. Number one, we see, and, and I'm still talking about the scattered family here, okay? Number one, it's an unknown audience. Look in verse number one. It's an unknown audience. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. There's no doubt that Peter is writing to Christians in this letter. For while he calls them strangers, he also identifies them as elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit in verse number 2. So he's talking to Christians. He's talking to fellow believers, okay? But they're an unknown audience. And uh, we also find here in verse number 2, the first part of verse number 2, that it was an unknown audience, but it was a unified audience. Look at what it says. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Let me just stop right here and say we are all one in Christ regardless of our background prior to salvation. This is why Christians can go anywhere in this world and find fellowship with other Christians. We can, even with language barriers and cultural barriers, the child of God is at home with God's people anywhere. That's why I have such an issue, and I've preached this before, and I've talked about this before, at how so many people who call themselves Christians today, that's why I've got a problem. Because why in the world does the Jesus inside of me not agree with the so-called Jesus inside of them? We have people out here that live any way that they want to. They do whatever they want to. And we're going to get into this in a minute a little bit deeper. But they do whatever they want. They say whatever they want. They act any way. Honey, I don't feel good around them people. And it's strange because many of them say that they have Jesus living in them. Well, why wouldn't Jesus get along with himself is what I ask. If Jesus is living in me and Jesus is living in them. Let me just say something. Jesus won't contradict himself. And so there's a big problem in America. But let me tell you something. When I get around people that, I'm, I mean, I'm just going to say it, a true Christian, your spirit bears witness with their spirit. And honey, I ain't never met a Christian that was a stranger. Not a true Christian now. I ain't. The Bible tells us in John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. In John 17.11, the Bible says, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. In John 17 verse 20, it says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. Let me explain something real quick. Unity among believers is in the Bible. I just gave you like five verses for that. It is God's will for us to be united with other Christians. Now, in full disclosure... Mormons are not Christians. Roman Catholics are not Christians. We are not to be so stuck on unity that we're going out here like the world is 
and saying that Baptists can fellowship with Catholics and Catholics can fellowship with Mormons and we're all supposed to unite together because after all, isn't God a God of love? And let's just throw all of this other doctrine to the wind and just focus on one thing and that is God is love. That's not taught in the Bible. That's the way the world looks at unity. Let's get, let's just set aside all of our differences and just get along. Now, I can get along with anybody. I can. I got no problem getting along with people. I've sat, I sat and talked to a Catholic priest one day for an hour and a half about his church history. It was an amazing conversation. Told him what I believed about God. He told me what he believed about God. They did not match. That's not to say that I just because I disagree with somebody, I don't have none. That's not what I'm saying, okay? But let me tell you, the doctrines of the faith, the fundamentals of the doctrine that we have in the Bible, such as a virgin birth, such as a triune God, such as the only way to heaven is through Jesus, and the only way through Jesus is by faith, through His grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's what I'm talking about. When we don't see eye to eye on those things, I'm sorry. You're not Christian. Because you don't believe the Bible. So I hope that's clear. I am not one of these guys that say just because you don't believe everything that I do. Because guess what? I'm not perfect. There's some things I believe. I, I, I told her, I, it, I, it brought, it come up in a conversation just the other day. I even looked at another pastor and I said, I wish I could be dogmatic about that, but I just can't. It is an opinion, no matter how strongly I felt about that, because I can't find it in here anywhere. Some things are like that. So on that particular matter, I'm not looking down at anybody and I'm not breaking fellowship with somebody over that particular matter. I hope I'm being clear. Maybe I've done confused everybody. I hope not. But anyways, unity is in the Bible. Yeah, we ought to be united. Church right over here believes what we do. They, they believe the fundamentals of the faith that we do. Maybe they don't do everything like we do, honey. I don't care if they do everything the way that I do. If they believe the fundamentals of the Bible... If that preacher's preaching the right Bible, if he's preaching the right gospel, I'm for him. That's me, okay? So we ought to be united on things like that. All right. Whew. Felt like I made that more complicated than it should have been. Now here's a third thing. Ah, man, I ain't going to get through this. We see an unmovable audience. An unmovable audience. Let's keep looking. In verse number 2, it says, Through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. So while this audience here was often on the move, they were scattered because of the persecution that came their way, their position in Christ was unmovable. And what a joy it is for us today to know that regardless of our location, regardless of our circumstances, nothing can or ever will change our position in Jesus Christ. Circumstance changes, location changes, wealth changes, health changes. But here, here, here's the thing, we are eternally a child of God. And that never changes, my friend. So let's look on. Number one, we find here a scattered family. But number two, we find a sudden fury. 
a sudden fury. Later on in chapter number 5, Peter describes the devil as a roaring lion that walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now while sometimes the intimidating roar of our adversary will leave us in fear, other times he lurks quietly. He's quietly waiting for an opportune time to attack us. This is why we have to always be sober. That's why we always have to be vigilant. For we never know when he might strike. Now if you was here last Wednesday and we were talking about how Peter denied the Lord and how all of that led up, I think Peter knew exactly what he was saying right there. Because that's how the devil got him. Oh, Jesus, I'll never, I'll never deny you. The whole world can deny you, but I'll never deny you. And the devil was just sitting back the whole time, smiling and laughing and waiting for Peter to get right where he wanted him. Then he strike, struck, strike. How do I say that? I don't know. He struck him right when he was the weakest. Yeah. And so we have, I want you to notice in verse 6 and 7, 1 Peter chapter number 1, we have a weighty adversity. The Bible says, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Listen, while, there's no, uh, while there were no immediate martyrdoms taking place at the time of the writing of 1 Peter here, it is apparent that these Christians were being subjected to a sharp opposition and a persecution because of their faith. And uh, so far in America, Christians are not being put to death. But you got your head in the sand if you haven't seen a dramatic and a drastic difference on how our faith is being addressed in America. The name of Jesus Christ is scorned. Prayer is forbidden in public places. The Bible is mocked. God's people are declared not only ignorant, but they're declared a threat to the status quo of liberalism and humanism. And if you heard our president give his speech that he made just a few months ago, he called us a bunch of terrorists. He did. He did not say it that forthwith, but he declared, let me just put it this way, he declared that people that were against abortion and that people that supported uh, the conservative goals of people like Donald Trump and different things were terrorists. They were a threat to democracy is what he said. I'm sitting there listening going, you're talking about me. I'm the nicest guy you'd ever want to meet. I've never hurt anybody. And I got called a terrorist. That offended me. Didn't surprise me though. Things are changing in America for us. If you're a true born again Christian, things are changing big time. And just as things got worse for the Christians in the, after the first century, and many did lose their lives because of their faith, we too in America could be subject to far more adversity than we can even imagine right now. And more and more, here, here it is, we find ourselves as believers out of the mainstream of culture. We are indeed a peculiar people, aren't we? And so we see here there's a weighty adversity that we find here. But we also find a wrongful accusation. If you turn over to chapter number 3, 
going somewhere with this. It's a wrongful accusation. Mentioned that by our president just a minute ago. Look at what the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3. Look in verse 13 through 17. The Bible says, And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil doing. And see, from Peter's admonition here, admonition here, he it appears that the believers were they were being persecuted and they were being accused of slandering the government and being labeled as anarchists. Wow. Tell me the Bible's not more accurate than a newspaper. This tactic right here has been used over and over and over by Satan down through the years. The Anabaptists were labeled all over uh, as, as anarchists when history has been written to the contrary. Many of those who fought in the Revolutionary War were labeled as rebels as they fought for liber the liberty from the religious bondage of England. And today God's people are thought of as out of touch with culture. And when we oppose sinful practices, uh, we are labeled as a racist. We are, called, we are called bigots and we're threatened with committing a hate crime. 1 Peter 4, 4 says this, Wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot speaking evil of you. See, it's not good enough anymore. We've had many, many years where people of Christ and people that were Christians and churches have just sat on the sidelines and been quiet. Guess where we're at today? How many of y'all remember the attitude over 10 years ago of, hey, what is it to me if somebody's gay? I don't care what they do. It's not my business. Well, what about today? Fast forward 10, 15 years into the future when they're no longer demanding that people be quiet about it. They are demanding that you bow to their lifestyle. It's not good enough for me to say, look, I don't hate you. As a matter of fact, I love you as a person. God loves you as a person. I just don't agree with the way you do things. And I'm sincere about that. That's not good enough anymore in the world that we live in. They want to teach our kids that it's okay. They want to teach our kids literally that they can be all that they ever wanted to be or whatever they dreamed to be. And honey, we ain't talking about astronauts and paramedics and police anymore. I never thought that we would have some of the challenges that we do in our day. It blows my mind. Y'all know locally they got classrooms with kitty litter boxes in them for kids that, that say that they're cat, cats? Yeah. Yeah. Blows my mind. Surrey County, North Carolina, USA. Blows my mind. I ain't trying to be funny, but a real quick way to fix all of that is, honey, if you think you're a cat, then you're now going to eat like a cat. Yeah. And you're going to have to stay outside like a cat. Because if you're really a cat, that's how cats deal. Yeah. 
We need to stop with all the nonsense. And by the way, I'm, I, I, this is hate speech in the world that we live in. It's pitiful. But what's the Bible say? Wherein they think it's strange that ye not, run not with them. What does that mean, preacher? They think it's weird that I just can't accept them. They think it's strange that I don't agree with them. And then what happens? Speaking evil of you. I'm a racist. I'm a bigot. Yeah. The natural or unsaved person doesn't understand the things of God. We know that from 1 Corinthians 2. They're blinded to the truth and they will often persecute those who live in the truth. Let me go ahead and say it, church. At some point in the future, you're going to be persecuted not by something you do, but just because you are who you are. And so, we also see here, we see a weighty adverse, adverse, uh, adversity. We see a wrongful accusation, but we also see a wonderful association. Look in verse Peter chapter 4. Look in verse number 12. I can't stand something being on my glasses. It says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings that when His glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part He is evil spoken of, but on your part He is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on his behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first began at us, what shall the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. Listen, while it may seem like little compensation, we are in good company when our faith is attacked. Remember, they didn't stone Stephen, behead John the Baptist, martyr Paul, or crucify Jesus because they were wrong. They were persecuted because they were right. It may not be fair, but honey, what an honor it is to be associated with the faithful. You know what Hebrews 11 talks about those who were persecuted? They're not even named in the Bible. You know what it says? It says the world was not worthy of them. I don't know about y'all, but that's who I want to be associated with. Yeah, it is. Always remember, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount right here. And here's what He says. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for My sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Yeah. So we've got a scattered family. We've got a sudden fury. But then we've got a separating faith. Separating faith. From the very beginning, God instructs His people to be different from the world. 
He does. From the beginning, Leviticus chapter 10, verse 10. And that ye may put difference between holy and unholy and between unclean and clean. When God's people are no different from the world, the world doesn't want and the world doesn't think that they need what you say you got. You say you got God. You say you're saved by the blood of Jesus. Well, guess what? If you're living like them and talking like them and acting like them, then they don't need what you got. It's through this difference in lifestyle that the lost are convicted and realize their need for Christ. Matthew 5, 16. The verse for this church right here. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Christians are the only Bible many people are ever going to read. We need to remember that every day as we live our lives. We may live in dark times, but the darker the night, the brighter the light. What a privilege it is to stand up against the darkness. Every light makes a difference, but we can't make a difference until we're different. Yeah. So we're taught in 1 Peter how to respond to a number of things. A number of things concerning separation. I want you to notice. Number one, concerning this. I really got to hurry up. Sorry. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. Shows us, that, shows us the believer's response to worldly license. Look at what it says. Wherein they think it strange that ye none run not with them to the same excess of right, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. Many Christians today try to blend their beliefs with the world and with the culture of the world, and it just doesn't work. Why don't it work? Well, God and the world simply have nothing in common. God commands His people to have nothing to do with the world. 1 John chapter 2 says this, verse 15, 16, and 17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Yeah, we're living in this world, but we are not to be a part of this world. Hey, let me just illustrate it this way. If you go fishing, you may place your boat in the water, but hopefully none of that water is going to get in the boat. Right? If the water gets in the boat, you're in trouble. And so, here's the second thing. Shows us the believer's response to wicked leadership. Mm. This is going to hit home for us. 1 Peter chapter 2, look in verse number 13 and 14. The Bible says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto the governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. Hey, God created government to punish wickedness and protect righteousness. Wicked leaders, however often protect sinful lifestyles while harassing godliness. But you know, we are commanded to speak the truth in the face of the wicked leaders. Elijah held no punches as he spoke to the most wicked king who ever lived, King Ahab. John the Baptist had no fear as he called out the sin of King Herod. Jesus spoke directly in truth to Pilate. But listen, we must also pray for our leaders. And we should not return evil for evil. No, we shouldn't. 
I'll be the first. <laughs> I may not make any friends, especially around here for this, but what happened in January 6th should have never happened. That ain't how we fight our battles. The Bible says return not evil. Hey, I know what's going on in Washington ain't right, but the answer is not to... It's not that. We can find the answer in the Bible. We are to pray for our governors. We are to pray for our president. We are to pray for our leaders. Ecclesiastes 10.20 says this, and just so you know, I'm just, I'm just giving you Bible. There's a lot of good Christians, a lot of good people I know. Boy, they hate our president. They don't mind telling you. But you know what the Bible says? Ecclesiastes 10.20, curse not the king, no, not in thy thought. You know why? Because his position demands our respect. Oh, I didn't expect to get no amens there. <laughs> Romans 13.1 says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God, and the powers that be are, 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 are ordained. Y'all try to say it fast. Are ordained of God. The powers that be are ordained by God. I'm just going to go on. So we got a scattered family, we've got a sudden fury. We've got a separating faith, and then finally, we've got a sincere fear. A sincere fear. The Apostle Peter is concerned that these believers are going to cave to the pressures that they were facing. Peter knew that human resolve can wear down quickly, and without the power of God working in our lives, we're going to cave. We must constantly remind ourselves, 1 John 4, 4 says this, You are God's little children and have overcome them because greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. Yeah. There were three reasons. There was a sincere fear. I'm going to give them to you and we're going to go, okay? I know this has been long. These studies are long. But they'll help you if you let them. There were three reasons for a sincere fear. The first reason... Peter saw an intimidation from the wicked. 1 Peter chapter 2, look in verse 11 and 12. He says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold glorify God in the day of visitation. Often our worst enemy is our own sinful flesh. D.L. Moody said it this way, the man I fear the most is the one who walks underneath this hat. The Apostle Paul was well aware of the constant war between the flesh and the spirit. As a matter of fact, he wrote Romans chapter 7, verse 18, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. And so we must always yield to the Spirit if we're ever going to defeat the flesh. Galatians 5, 16, 17 tells us this. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. No, we should strive as Christians to always walk in the Spirit. It don't always happen. It's a daily thing. We have to die to ourselves every single day. And guess what? You're going to have good days 
You're going to have bad days. You're going to have good half days and bad rest of days. You're going to have days that you start off bad, but you may wind up pretty good. But we ought to strive to always walk in the Spirit. That's when the world's going to know there's a difference in us. The second reason for the sincere fear was this right here. He saw an inactivity among the weak. Look in verse 16 of 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, As free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Here's the thing. The best way to keep the world, the flesh, and the devil at bay is to stay busy for the Lord. Stay busy for the Lord. Idleness is the devil's workshop. Yeah. Sure is. Spiritual muscle comes from spiritual exercise. I got one-liners for days. Anyways. I think it's... Here's one more. No, I got two more. Couch potato Christians never win any battles against the devil. Last one, I promise. God didn't save us to sit, soak, and sour. He saved us to stand, strive, and serve. Idleness is the devil's workshop. The best way, the best way to strengthen the Spirit is to be busy in the work of God. Peter had a third reason for fear. This sincere fear is because he saw an inconsistency in the workers. I'm almost done, I promise. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2 and 3. The Bible says, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. He saw an inconsistency in the workers. Peter feared that the leaders would let the followers down and weaken the church. Got another one-liner. The pew never goes farther than the pulpit. Yeah. To those whom God places in leadership must consistently follow the Lord as examples. You know why so many churches are going in the wrong direction? Because their leader is going in the wrong direction. Leadership ain't about the leader. Please be understanding to that. Leadership is not about the leader. It's about God and the flock that He has called them to lead. But they can be led in a wrong way. It's obvious. Acts chapter 20 verse 28 says this, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made your overseers to feed the church of God which He hath purchased with His own blood. Everybody's got influence. No man's an island. Someone's following you. Question is, will they stay faithful to God if they follow you? Paul could confidently command the Corinthians to follow him. You know why? Because he was following God. He says, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. You know what's happened to a lot in the day which we live? They've cut God out. 
And you got a guy sitting up somewhere saying, follow me because I'm the man. And we're just cool. Sad thing is, you can fill a church with that. But you can't fill a church with truth. It's pitiful. Here's my question for all of us, not just me, but for all of us. Do we have the same confidence that the Apostle Paul did? When he looked at the Corinthian church, and he said, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Do we have that confidence tonight? Hey, eternal life does not guarantee exemption from Satan's attack. As a child of God, you're in Satan's sights. And let me tell you, if you're doing anything for God, and you ought to be, because that's how we strengthen our spirit, you got targets on your back. I mentioned that last week. He wants to destroy your influence. And oftentimes during trials, He swoops in and He'll take advantage of us at our vulnerable times. God gives us the Bible though to equip us for those times. We can win this war, but we can't do it in our own strength. You got to put on the armor of God. You got to get in His Word. You can't sit soaking sour. You got to strive. You got to serve. You got to stay in the fight.